This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, mechanical engineer and author David Hugh talks with Kat Snow from KQED Science about how scientists are inspired by animals to develop cutting-edge technology. This event was recorded on October 17, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Welcome, David. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here, Kat. I thought we would start with water striders for a couple of reasons. One is that I loved them when I was a kid. We called them water skippers. And I spent a lot of time watching them skipper along, along rivers. But not once did I ever notice that they actually have legs that operate as oars. So I was fascinated to learn what you learned about. And it was your first love, was the water striders. So tell us, like, what is it about them that made you so drawn to finding out more about what they can do? So uh, water striders, they're, about, they're these insects about you know, an inch long, and they're on ponds and streams all over, all over the world, basically. And uh, the amazing thing about them is they, they literally walk on water. Um, and uh, they do it with these, they have these long, thin legs, and uh, they actually stand on the water surface. And um, they move so fast that people actually can't see them. You really just see a, a flash of, of black as it moves along, and it basically disappears. So kids are always trying to sink them with rocks, and they can never really get them. So the, I was amazed at them, because I, I had no idea how they moved. And so we, it was the first time we actually used a high-speed camera to start to slow down the motion. And um, what we found out is actually they use the water surface kind of like a trampoline. They use these forces of surface tension. So they actually, when they row, they don't actually break the surface. They can actually just deform the surface and push along this basically surface tension and basically move, move forward. Well, this is part of what was so fascinating about, about, you talked about how the ability of an animal to use that surface tension also depends on their size, but there are some really kind of large animals that can somehow also use surface tension just a little bit for short periods of time like the lizard I'm thinking of. Yeah, the, um, so the water star is the own, uh, one of the insects that walk on water, but there's these, a lot of people want to know when can we walk in water, when can humans walk in water? And Of course. Yeah, the closest <laughs> thing to us is, probably, is these the things called the basis lizards, these um, so-called Jesus Christ lizards. Um, they're actually, they actually, uh, they don't use surface engine. They're so big that they actually just slap the surface with their feet. And it's like basically their feet are doing a belly flop every time they hit the surface. And they do it so fast that that slap can actually support their weight. And they, do it, they pull their foot out so fast, their foot actually doesn't get wet. So they create this cavity and they pull it out. So they're basically just walking on little air potholes pockets. of air. Pockets of air. Yeah, they generate these potholes of air and just skitter across. And that's kind of something they have in common with the water striders that also use air. Tell, me, tell us a story about how you figured out how they actually move the water striders. So there was this paradox. Um, actually, people thought they, they needed to generate these waves to move. So 
by this, there's this principle called conservation of momentum. Basically, if a fish moves forward, it's gotta push fluid backward. And so for a water starter to move, it's gotta push a pocket of fluid backward. And the only thing people see when they watch them is these waves that are just propagating backward. So they, they thought that was what was the culprit. But um, if you actually look really closely and put the dye in the fluid, you see they actually generate these little vortices. That means that's these little sort of little patches of moving fluid, similar to if you, you know, take a spoon and move it through your coffee, you'll generate these vortices. And um, it's surprising because their legs don't have any, we call them oars, but they don't have any blades. Their legs are just long and skinny. They're about the thickness of a human hair. But because they basically deform the water surface, they generate an oar that's made out of air, and they use that oar to push on more water. And so they actually using their air, their just spontaneously created oars to create these vortices and to push themselves forward. And they have all these hairs that are part of that too, like the little hairs, what did you say, 10,000 hairs per millimeter? Yeah. Is that um, right? Well, each, each leg of this water surge is like the hair of a human head. And on each of those hairs is 10,000 hairs per square millimeter. Okay, just show us how big a square millimeter is. It's, uh, it's like it's, um, if you held your fingers... If I had a pimple, that would pretty much be a square millimeter. Okay. <laughs> I definitely have a pimple because I've been traveling for two days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is an astonishing thing. And the, and the hairs are hovering. Are they touching the water or are they touching air on top of the water? So when you have hairs that small, the amazing thing is that water can't actually penetrate it. Um, water, it wants to avoid creating new surface area. So when they're actually standing on, imagine these you know, hundreds of thousands of hairs, those hairs are actually filled with air. And so they're actually standing on air pockets. Um, and that's why they end up calling them pond skaters because you can blow on them and they just glide frictionlessly because it's, they're like these air hockey tables. They're just gliding on a cushion of air. So the hairs are never really touching the water at all. Only the very Just the tips. very, very tippy, very tip, 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 yeah. tip. Yeah. If it's you look underneath, you see like a pincushion. Um, and, and so basically, they're, they're really not getting wet at all. Part of the point that I loved about this was that you said, um, depending on the size of the body of an animal, then that, then that animal can perceive certain forces acting on it. Like, in other words, this water strider can perceive surface tension, whereas we can't. I can't step on water and perceive the tension on the surface of that water because I'm too heavy. So I was curious about um, if you could talk a little bit about, for humans, what are some of the forces that we're not able to perceive, like surface tension? What are some other things we, for the, our size and our shape, we just can't perceive that are acting on other creatures around us? Yes, and this is one of the big principles of the book, that um, the uh, physics of things really changes dramatically with, with body size. Um, I think the, the best quote about this is what, what happens when animals fall off a building. Um, when a mouse falls off the top of a building, it actually just bounces and walks away. And if a person falls off a building, they break a leg. And if a horse falls off a building, well, they say the horse splashes. Oh, <laughs> that's a gruesome image. That's yeah, a gruesome but, image. but so, um, in other words, the horse is feeling the force of gravity forces. in a different way yeah. than the mouse. Yeah, and I the mean human. ants. Basically, any animals that are smaller than you know the size of a mouse, they can they never have to fear falls. They could fall off, ants fall off buildings, they're just gonna float to the ground. They basically have really low terminal velocities. Um, and, as, and as a result, they also have very low inertial forces. So they never have to worry about bumping, in, bumping into things. Um, for example, bees, they're, uh, they're on a huge rush to go back and forth 
from the pollen to get to, from the hive to get pollen. I mean, they carry something like 30% of their body weight every trip in pollen, and they've got to do this constantly. And so as a result, they actually don't stop. When they see a flower, they just keep on going, and over their lifetime, they'll get 400,000 collisions with all the objects around them. So they don't go around things. No, they, they, they just, just bounce off of it and keep they going. Bounce. Yeah, they're like my kids. Um, well, our pediatrician doesn't like to say that, us to say that, but uh, <laughs> they, they seem fine when they fall off the bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kids do kind of just bounce when they fall at a certain age. Yeah, yeah, but um, and it's all because of the consequences of the body size. Once you're once you're small, you it's very difficult to to get injured. Um, another example is this. Um, uh, in Atlanta, we have a lot of mosquitoes, and. Uh, if you ever wondered um, what happens to mosquitoes when there's a rainstorm, because they're, they're flying through the air. Uh -huh. and, uh, and if you think about it, a, a raindrop's about 50 times as heavy as a mosquito. Um, uh, that's about us being hit by a Volkswagen Beetle. And that happens every time a raindrop hits a mosquito. And so you think, oh, during a rainstorm, you just have a bunch of splattered mosquitoes. But uh, the other thing is the mosquitoes don't avoid raindrops at all. What they do is, um, Every time raindrops come, they just get, because they're so lightweight, they get pushed by the raindrops. So they experience very different forces than we do. For example, when we, in, in a rainstorm, we put out our hand, a raindrop hits it and it splashes and it, because we're stopping the momentum. But because a mosquito is so light, it doesn't stop the raindrop at all. And basically, because it doesn't provide a resistance force, it basically, both of them fall together unharmed. Oh, and the, so the mosquito actually falls all the way to the ground with the raindrop? They kind of detach after a couple inches. Um, but they basically just act as a stowaway, and they don't. Raindrops don't splash when they hit mosquitoes; they just go so along for the ride. The raindrop, the mosquitoes, like flying around, and it's getting hit, and it's getting hit. Yeah, and it's, getting hit it's and kind it's of just like on bouncing a up and down. Coaster ride. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's not injured, and uh, that's just one of the consequences of body size. But I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest that if we're going through heavy traffic. <laughs> <laughs> do you just since we're on mosquitoes? Do you have any thoughts about the ecological value of mosquito? Oh yeah, I mean they're. Their eggs and their larvae are huge, huge resources for, for fish. I mean, they, they reproduce in very large quantities. They have a very fast life cycle. Um, I think, I mean, if we eradicated mosquitoes, there'd be a huge number of fish larvae that would probably have to find some other So some if we love salmon, source. we kind of have to love mosquitoes too. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. And the salmon in rivers, that is. Uh, and not just the predators too. There's... Um, flowers that can only be pollinated by insects of certain sizes. Um, there's no accident that there's flowers of all different sizes and insects of all different sizes. And mosquitoes are actually responsible for pollinating blueberries. Um, really? Yeah, because the little blueberry flowers are just big enough for the mosquito. I mean, a big hummingbird can't fit into that little, little yeah. hole. So, yeah. um, so there's a huge, I mean, they're involved in the ecosystem from the plants all the way down to the, to the fish. Okay, so we, yeah. we can't just think of our reaticin. Thank you for that. We need, we need that sometimes <laughs> well, you can in the middle one, of summer, okay. you know. Um, Killing one's okay, I think. I want to ask you to read something because, and this is kind of related a little bit to the surface tension. Um, one of the themes you have in the book is you, you put certain animals together, not necessarily because they look like each other, or you know, we think of them as being similar, but 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 how they move, and and in this one you have fire ants in a different place from the water striders, but you have fire ants relating to a certain surface tension, and so I want to talk about fire ants, but I want you to read from the opening because one of the things about this book is just it's hilarious. I mean, I laughed out loud so many times, and this is one of the times when I did. So if you could just read the first couple paragraphs. <laughs> okay. 
It's the first time I'm reading from my own book. <laughs> I have to really savor this moment. <laughs> it was the Tuesday after Memorial Day weekend when I received a distress call from a neighboring professor. When he arrived that morning, he had sat down at his desk, as usual. Underneath his desk, his foot touched something soft, like a sponge. When he looked down, he saw a miniature Eiffel Tower, about a foot tall, red and seething. It was a tower of ants, not just any ants, but fire ants, known for their venomous sting. How did the fire ants manage to escape my lab? On typical days, the fire ants were kept in my lab in plastic bins, the equivalent of 10 stories tall, their walls coated with liquid Teflon to make them an unescapable ant Alcatraz. However, the three days of the long weekend had given the ants sufficient time to gather their colonies into an aggregate of 100,000 individuals for a mass migration. They piled themselves on top of each other to build a siege tower to escape their binge. They carried their eggs and brood with them, laying chemical trails that lead them across the lab bench and down the sides of the cabinets. Then they proceeded across my laboratory floor, beneath my lab's closed doors, and then underneath the neighboring professor's door. Because of their ability to escape, we checked on the ant bins daily, but we came to dread the three-day weekends, which over the years had given me the title of most hated professor <laughs> in the biology department. Okay, so then you study fire ants, or you talk about the study of fire ants, and, and, and describe this phenomenal thing they can do um, about water, how they can, how they can exist in almost indestructibly, like with a flood or something like that. It's amazing how they can, you can't really kill them hardly at all, right? So how do they just survive these floods and things that happen to them? Yeah, there's, um, well, there's 10,000 species of ants out there, and uh, there's only 50 species that can basically link themselves together and build this super organism. So the fire ants, they evolved in this place that gets flooded every summer, meters high and what they do is they pull each other slowly out of the nest and they actually connect their bodies together and build this kind of like Gore-Tex. They're like linking arms in a way? The, um, not, uh, they basically touch arm to body and there's, each ant has six legs and so eventually you get 100,000 100, ants will have 600,000 connections. But if they're just touching each other, what prevents them from being pulled apart from each other? They've got um, little sticky pads at the end of their feet, and they can attach and detach really quickly. And each of those pads can support about 100 ant weights. Each of the pads on yeah. each foot? Yeah, so an ant could support um, 100 ants. Um, I mean, you could have a chain of 100 ants, and, and the ants will be and fine. And the bottom ant would be fine. Yeah, and this is another consequence of scaling. I mean, I think Rambo can probably hold on to one or two people, but not, not 100. Not 100, yeah. yeah. And that's just a consequence of being small. So they, they link each other up in the flood. Yeah, and imagine then it's kind of like a sponge. Um, and uh, they're able to link themselves so tightly that they basically generate um, this mesh that's kind of like the water strider, that the water actually can't penetrate it. And uh, inside the raft, inside this structure they built, it's completely dry. The outside, it basically this waterproof fortress full of ant legs. And so, and they sting you. And and <laughs> and so inside they're breathing air. Um, yeah, inside uh, it's dry. It's probably pretty comfortable. Uh, on the bottom, each of them, uh, after they generate these um, this mesh work, they um, carry bubbles with them. And the other amazing thing about being small is that when you're that small, when you create bubbles around your body, uh, biologists call these an artificial gill, 
because the ants can actually breathe the oxygen that diffuses into those bubbles. So even if an ant's trapped on the bottom of 100,000 other, 100, other ants, if it has basically this bubble around it, it can actually breathe just like a fish. Because then the, wa the, the, the oxygen from the water just kind of, as it breathes out of the bubble, the oxygen from the water fills up the bubble. Yeah, they, they basically take out the oxygen in the water, they breathe it up, and that generates this basically gradient and other oxygen from the surrounding water comes in. And that just keeps on going. So they can, they can stay underwater for a long time. And scientists are actually trying to build versions of this bubble suit that people can wear um, and go underwater and breathe. And somehow that bubble suit will also diffuse oxygen out of yeah, the water for yeah. people. How far is that something we're gonna see in the next couple of years or is that way down the road for us? Um, the last paper I saw on that was um, when I was in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> a while back. So it's, it, there's some issues with the scaling and keeping bubble stability. I mean, these are all sort of unsolved issues in, in fluid mechanics. I mean, I mean, there's similar questions on, they still don't understand how trees can actually suck up water from the bottom of the roots to the top because you would naturally actually get bubbles if you had a column of water that tall. But water wouldn't be able to support its own weight. It should basically separate. Um, but trees somehow are able to, you know, patch up these patch up these uh, water water patches, and they're able to have continuous water flow. Do you think they do it kind of like a snake, like squeezing the water, kind of? Um, uh, they have they have basically uh, sort of little gas stations that they repair. They basically prevent the water from separating. But it's it's still there's it's still quite not quite not understood. Uh, well, just yeah. back for one more second to the fire ants, because yeah. the other thing I thought was fascinating was that so they form this little mat, and then on top of the mat, the other ants are just walking around doing their thing, like they've just created the platform on which all the other ants can behave in whatever ant-like way they want, and then the scientists that you're writing about actually, you know, tested this this mesh by pressing down on it, and it didn't it just it did not release. It it's really tight. It sounded like. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, when they make this mesh work, it's 80% air. So you can actually take, I mean, I've taken a ball of ants in my hand. You can throw it up and down, um, make sure you wear gloves. You can throw it at people, make sure they don't have facial hair because it's going to be all over. <laughs> wow. Um, my students actually get bitten by ants during the experiments. And 12 hours later, after the experiments, because an ant will just get stuck in their hair, come home with them, hang but out. But when you toss the ball up and down, it stays a ball? Yeah. Yeah, it stays, it, stays like a, it stays like a ball. I mean, you can throw it up to a certain height and you can squish it. Kind of feels like a silly putty and uh, kind of like yogurt. Because you can also take it apart like string cheese and then you can put it back together. <laughs> it's the new form of silly putty. The new form of like making that clay and, um, yeah, making yeah. the clay and water. But, uh, but it's not sort of molecular bonds. It's the fact that these ants are making and breaking these connections really, really With quickly. With the sticky pads. It's the yeah, sticky pads. Yeah. yeah. If you have dead ants, uh, it's not fun anymore. No. It's just a, it's like sand. It's just a pile of... Oh, and they just go through your fingers. Yeah, it's yeah. Not, not as much fun. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love about your book also is that there's this endless creativity you describe in all the scientists and how they create some kind of a testing field for, for you know, what, whatever they want to test. Like, like using poppy seeds instead of grains of sand for, for something. Or using the, using the aluminum can to create the water strider robot because the aluminum is so thin. You know, and, and so I'm wondering if there's a, um, a particular kind of experiment that you heard about that you just laughed at the way they went about doing it. I think the most ridiculous experiment um, was this person's 
testing if snakes can fly. And uh, it started in the 19, in 1940s. There's a scientist, I mean, they had heard of these flying snakes in the Singaporean rainforest, but no one had ever filmed them or thought if this was true. So uh, this biologist, he took a, a snake of 10, 10 different species of snakes, 10 separate bags, climbed up to the top of the tallest tower he could, and just dropped them off the edge of the tower. One by one? And uh, recorded what happened. Yeah, and so he's like, snake one. And oh, that one felt like a rock. Oh, that's not so good. Snake two, whew. Oh yeah, that one didn't do anything either. So there's like nine out of 10 snakes just fell straight down. Like, like you would expect, right? Because snakes don't have wings. But then this last snake uh, called the paradise uh, tree snake, he throws it off and it glides for 100 meters. And they didn't have high-speed cameras back then, but he said, oh, that was weird. Let's do another one of those. <laughs> and, they, and then the second one flew, flew really far too. Um, and so this laid hidden in the literature for like 40 years. Until, Nobody followed up on it. Well, I mean, it was too there's weird. Uh, not too many people out there studying snakes. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the snakes bite and things like that, and, and, and you have to go to the rainforest to catch them. So, um, but anyway, this other scientist decided to go repeat this study, except really carefully. 40 um, years later. Okay. Yeah, 40 years later. But this problem is this scientist is scared of heights and scared of snake bites. <laughs> so he also carries the snakes in a bag, and he, they're, always, they're basically, he's climbing this really rickety tower, and they're biting him as he's climbing the tower. Wait, they're biting him through the bag? Um, yeah, because the babs have to be breathable, the burlap, so basically they're just, they're squirming, and they're uncomfortable, and when he gets to the top of the tower, he's got to figure out a way to, it turns out, they only fly if they fly on their own volition. You can't just toss them out like a piece of trash. They have to basically carefully look around their surroundings and then launch themselves off a stick. And so he figures all these things out and uh, takes these videos and he finds out that uh, they don't have wings, but their, um, their ribs can unswing. They can open up if they hold their breath and then they basically can open up their, 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 their ribs and they can basically use that as a, as a pretty good wing. And they, are, they actually glide better than tree frogs. If you heard of these gliding tree frogs, they glide better. And they're concave too. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. So they're, they've got some kind of aerodynamic thing going on. Yeah, the, the first time that people have looked at uh, airfoils of like a triangular shape. Um, and uh, it's supposed to be pretty good for different what's called angles of attack. So basically even if the snake feels these vortices or comes off with a strange angle, it can still generate lift. Regular airfoils, they have this, they basically start to stall if you basically have too, too high an angle. So um, they have certain advantages. And if you have two of them in a row, like the two parts of the snake, they can also shed vortices and sort of help each other. Um, you know, one of the effects of reading your book is that I began to have this longing for all these different kinds of movement. And one of the kinds of movement I was longing for was the way that the snake lands. You want to talk about how the snake lands? When it oh, gets done gliding, snake. yeah, after it's glided, it's distance, how it lands. Yeah. Um, so it basically has to, as it's, it, it's going faster and faster, and once it's, it gets to this gliding, sort of nice gliding angle, it starts going horizontally, and then basically has to land with its tail first, and basically slowly put the rest of its body on, on the ground. Yeah. And it's sometimes lucky enough to find a tree branch, and it will basically find a tree branch and wrap its tail around the branch and sort of wrap around the branch. Um, like a lasso. Yeah, so it actually would be, it seems like it might be a little bit dangerous because it's going to get faster and faster. Yeah, I think the that's probably the snake. advanced technique. <laughs> I think that's the only one they're really trying to show off. I think that's, they try that second. 
Is there any kind of movement that when you've been studying it that you've thought, oh, I wish I could do that? Um, I would really want to do the wet dog shake. Oh, tell us about the wet dog shake. Um, that's this, uh, I, anyone's had dogs or dogs or, or any mammals, they actually, um, they can dry themselves really, really quickly. I mean, they can, they can get 90% of their water off in about a single second. And, uh, and, they're, and it's all generated in their spinal cord. They basically have this way to shake their entire body. I mean, they, start with, they first start with their ears, and then it gets to their shoulders, and then it gets really in high amplitude to their midsection, and then their, their butt starts shaking, and then their tail finally finishes off with this spiral-like motion. And they do all this about, they do it about three times, and all the water just flings off. And uh, all these animals have mastered it, from mice all the way up to bears. And uh, the amazing thing is that they all have to have a different frequency, just like your laundry, your drying machine has to have a different, has a certain frequency to get the water off. Like how, you mean by how fast they shake? Yeah. In what direction yeah, also? Uh, the, yeah. the number of times per second. So, I mean, they're all so fast you can't see. A dog is about four times per second, uh, but a mouse is about 30 times per second. It's, it's really pushing the envelope because it's so small. It just, it can't get enough, um, those centripetal forces, it can't get them high enough. So it's got to really whip it out. Um, so they're really pushing the limits. And uh, you can tell they're really pushing the limits because they keep their eyes closed when they do this. And, uh, and it's because they generate about 15 times Earth's gravity every time they shake water off. And uh, there's this guy named Colonel John Stapp. He measured the human limits of acceleration, like how much Gs, how many Gs can a person take? And uh, we are about, and a car crash is about 10, and our limit's about 15. That's when your eyeballs start popping out of your sockets. The and somehow, and, and somehow so the, the dog, did you, say, did you say 15, the dog's able to generate yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, they generate that limit, and they just keep their eyes shut super tightly. And they just do this every time they, someone puts a post-it note on them, or... <laughs> <laughs> Which you do all the time, right? Yeah, Put I, I sometimes post-it notes fall on the dogs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you talk a lot about how scientists come up with an idea, and, and there's a lot of stories about somebody having some random thing happen, and then they just come out with this idea, like I'm thinking of the cockroach. That this this uh, graduate student is, sees cock, a cockroach and is trying to escape them, you know, jumping about, and, and one, his foot lands on one, and then it just scurries away. But instead of like maybe other people saying, wow, that was weird, or ooh, gross, or something, that he says, how does it do that? I just landed on it. And how did it take all that weight and still scurry off, which is, the way that a scientist's mind works. And so tell us about cockroaches and helicopters because they have something in common. Are you, people wanted to have them to have something in common. Yeah, cockroaches and helicopters, they're both really crash resistant. Um, and so this, this is grad student, he's actually at Berkeley, um, Kaushik Jerium. And he was, he was interested uh, in that when he was stepping on cockroaches, sometimes they would just run away. And uh, so he actually, most people would just think that's pretty gross, let's not think about it anymore, and let's keep on going. But he actually set up a whole experiment and he gave basically, tried to chase cockroaches and try to figure out what's the smallest hole a cockroach can squeeze into. Because you see them all over your house and you keep the door shut, where are they coming from? And so he wanted to figure out, you know, what's the smallest hole they can get their head through. So imagine you have a tunnel uh, and uh, he made tunnels of decreasing height uh, and saw what would the cockroach do. And cockroaches, they're, so they're really good for robotics because they're not very smart. When they actually run up walls, they just bang their head in the wall multiple times, and eventually they get one foot in the wall and they go up. 
And similarly with the tunnel, they don't really, they just sort of aim roughly for the tunnel and they just bang their head into the tunnel until they get their body through. And so ultimately, he found a cockroach can squeeze its body into a tunnel that's about the height of a stack of two pennies. That's like a Labrador retriever putting its whole body into a mailbox. <laughs> and uh, what they do is, because this cockroach actually, the entire body is composed, it looks like it's a solid thing, but it's all these elastic elements that allow its like, fluid insides to sort of bulge out. And so it walks on its you know, feet when it's on the ground, but when it's in the tunnel, it actually walks on its little, little knees. And no, when it's going through that tiny little tunnel, it can actually go at half its speed. It's still running through the tunnel. So those sounds you're hearing in your kitchen cabinets, it's, there's cockroaches running through these tiny, you know, two pennies tall, these tiny little gaps. And so he was fascinated. And, and this actually has a really important application. Um, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of places that people can't go and even treaded vehicles like tanks they can't go. Um, one example is these like uh, rubble out of, of basically buildings that fall down during natural disasters. And so they're, people are actually interested in building robots that can screw around like cockroaches, like go through these little gaps, pop back up and walk around. And so we actually built this robot called Cram that can actually reduce its, you know, also has these flexible elements and can walk through these tunnels that are half its height. And he based it on, you know, squishing these cockroaches and seeing what they could take and how to design them. And if I heard it, if I read it right, it was like, as if, say, my ribs were rubber, but everything in between the ribs just kind of came squishing out from the ribs until I got to the space on the other side and then pops yeah, it back right. in. Cockroaches satisfy conservation of mass, of volume. So they just, when you squeeze this way, they go the other way. They go sideways. Yeah. And they imagine oh, and if you squeeze this way, they're going to go up, up. Uh, I don't know. He didn't do that experiment. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know that yet. <laughs> but they can probably, I bet they can do that too. They can probably go sideways. Um, uh, but yeah, it's imagine every solid bone you have had a joint, and that's what they have. And imagine um, like everything in us kind of squishing out through the, through the edges. Yeah, through the nooks and crannies. Um, and it means that they were actually you know, made to be squished. They were made to squish through holes this big and made for survive these like impacts and stuff. And, uh, and that happened through a process of, of evolution. Because um, not all the insects, not all the insects can do that. You can't take every insect and try to squish it down and have it walk away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any idea, like, why? What do they need to do that evolution had them evolve in that way? What, what is it? How does that serve them particularly in their life habits? Besides they, the fact that they can <laughs> invade people's houses. <laughs> I mean, I mean, when you're small, you are basically food for everybody. They, I mean. The people, biologists have done this study of how many legs that insects have, and the average is actually not six. They actually have on average five legs because they've each had this life, just life-threatening emergency. They ran away and with their life, but they lost a leg. So on average, insects have five legs, and cockroaches are just always running for their lives. And so they've got to be able to take every opportunity to squeeze through some hole away from the cat or away from the bigger, bigger thing that's trying to catch them. Mm, thanks. Um, I think if I had one kind of superpower from reading your book, it's going to be a kind of a weird one. I mean, I, I do, I've always wanted to fly, like the snake, I'd love to fly, but I was completely fascinated by the marine worm, and I, I kind of would love to have the superpower of the marine worm, which I'm not going to tell, I'm going to let you tell that story about what marine worms can do and how we, how we learned that. So 
Um, how worms move is a, was really an open question um, for, a, for a long time. People used to thought, think that worms just ate their way. For example, if you have an apple, they ate their way through the apple. Um, but the, there's first person to study this, Kelly Dorgan, also from Berkeley. Um, she put worms in jello, uh, basically, which is a, simulates mud and this other sediment. And uh, she finds that, <clears throat> so the worms, the worms, it's a hard problem because worms are, their bodies are really soft. And how does a soft thing propagate through this really, really hard material? Like, and, um, like, like a hard mud, for example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it turns out that these worms, what she saw in the videos, that worms were basically, they're wiggling their heads back and forth. And what that was doing was forming uh, this thing called a crack. And uh, it is basically using a similar strategy. What was So in the 1950s, people were building airplane wings. And they thought airplane wings should be really, really strong if they made them a certain way. But they were all breaking at about 100 times lower force than predicted from, from the property of the metal. And it's because of the formation of cracks. Once you have, when you make the wings in a certain way, you basically, if you don't uh, carefully make it, there'll be small cracks, and those can propagate really easily. And they'll basically cause the wing to break really, really fast. Um, and so what the worms are doing, even, even though they're not strong enough to break the material, they can basically bend a, just a little bit to take advantage of this crack propagation. Um, it's like, imagine you have this frozen cheesecake. Like if I'm in the middle of the night, I wanna eat this cheesecake, and I don't wanna warm it up in the microwave because I'm too lazy, but I don't, don't wanna eat the whole cheesecake. What I'll have to do is I take a knife, and I'll just wiggle it back and forth, and the cheesecake will just crack open. You won't have to just, well, I did try pounding. One time I tried pounding on it like crazy, and it actually broke my marble kitchen thing, <laughs> the cabinet thing, and my wife <laughs> And you still didn't pissed. have a piece of cheesecake. No, no, but I broke the thing. So I think worms are pretty smart. They just do this little wiggling motion. And then but there's the other thing they do when they're in soft mud, which is different. Oh, yeah, they can also... That's the superpower <clears throat> I want, is the soft mud superpower. Um, in softer mud, they can basically... They have this thing called a pharynx. They can extrude it out of their head like a balloon, kind of like a party horn, and that basically pushes out... The crack, the crack ahead of them. Yeah, like and, as if their throat just came out of their mouth, yeah. pushing through the mud, and then they bring it back in. And they bring it back in. And, they and then there's a space they hole. wiggle into. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so here's what I want to know. I'm imagining this, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, so if, that, if their throat's kind of coming out, then either it's closed up at the end so they don't bring mud back with them, in which case, how do they get things down? Or it's open at the end, so aren't they bringing mud back in when they bring it back in? It's, it's, um, <clears throat> it's open at the end. They're just sort of pushing the mud to the side. So aren't they bringing mud back into their throat when they bring... Maybe a, maybe a, maybe a little bit. It doesn't matter. Um, it's kind of like a... It is like a party horn. It's like opening and then kind of closing. Kind of one of those snakes in the tube that comes out. Yeah. Imagine reverse time and it'll go back, go back in. Yeah, I don't know why that is appealing to me. I just think it's hilarious <laughs> that you could you could have a party horn in your own throat and you could just blow it out and bring it back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? and actually, when you're in soft mud, that cracking technique that I mentioned with the knife that doesn't actually work. So they have to have evolved this other way to push uh -huh. the mud away. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that I think maybe you laughed about in your own career also was that you won an Ig Nobel, um, which maybe people know what that is if you haven't heard of them. They are um, awards for improbable research, and they're given by the Annals of Improbable Research every year at Harvard. Is that right? That's right. Um, and it's a pretty hilarious group of people with an amazing set of, um, of uh, kinds of experiments. Um, yours 
began when you had a baby boy and you went and changed the diapers and the baby boy did what baby boys tend to do, which is pee all over you. And that was the launching of your Ig Nobel. You want to take it from there? Yeah. So covered in pee. <laughs> the one thing I was thinking about that, that's a really long pee. Um, <clears throat> I mean, anyone who's babysit kids, they take some time in the bathroom. I mean, I've looked at my baby's pee and poo and things like that, but his pee time was really, really long. So, and he was an infant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were only like 10 pounds. And, you know, I was thinking, why is their pee time so long? And maybe they have some kind of like bladder issue. I've got to go to like the pediatrician's office. Because um, you think about where does pee come from? It comes from urea, which is a byproduct of blood. So I've got about 10 times as much blood. I should have a 10 times bigger bladder. But he's getting out in the same amount of time. It just didn't make any, didn't make any well, sense. Well, because you timed yourself to make sure, to see yeah. whether or not you had the same yeah, pee time as your son. Yeah, I had to take meticulous um, measurements of myself and found that my, my, ten, my you know, one-year-old son is a stronger peer than I was, you know, peeing just as much as long. So, so I, you know, it just stuck with me. I was just like compelled. I was like, I need to understand this. And so I just found a couple um, undergraduate researchers. <laughs> um, uh, Pre-meds, actually. Um, one of them is actually a professional urologist now. <laughs> he loved this so much, he just never came back. And uh, I said, uh, you know, I want you to uh, do an experiment. I want you to go to the Atlanta Zoo and take this bucket and this stopwatch. I want you to take all the measurements of urine volume and time of all the animals in the zoo. And I don't want you to come back until you get the biggest animals, because uh -huh. that's going to prove our theory. Uh -huh. And so... They, they don't think this is serious, a serious research project. Um, they think I'm harassing them, but they go do it because I'm a professor. <laughs> and uh, so they come back and uh, they said, our data is really boring. It's not very interesting. And I said, just tell me one thing. What did the elephant do? Because, you know, as a biologist, if I know what the elephant does, then I can basically look through the data and I can figure out what's going on and say, oh, the elephant, well, it... It doesn't listen to anything we say, so we have to come up in the morning when it wakes up. <clears throat> and when it wakes up, just like us, it takes a big, big pee. And so they take a kitchen garbage can and they put it underneath the elephant, like 20 liters, you know, American-sized garbage can. <clears throat> and uh, the elephant actually fills the entire can in about 21 seconds. The same amount of time as your son. Yeah. And you. Yeah, that's <laughs> basically, and in fact, all animals urinate 21 plus or minus 13 seconds. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, uh, I mean, I was super happy that there's this magical number um, that describes all these animals' urination. And we looked at it, and it turns out, you know, if you look in all the medical textbooks, there's this organ called the urethra. I tell my kids it's called the it's the pee pee pipe. Males and men, men and women both have a pee pee pipe, um, just on different parts. And uh, this pee pee pipe, no one knows what the purpose of it's for. But if you actually have a long pipe and you have this bladder, the pipe can actually increase the speed of urine. It basically, basically accentuates gravity. And, and so the elephant is actually, its pee-pee pipe is about a meter long and about the width of my fist. And so that can allow it to pee like five shower heads going on at once. Five shower heads every second or so? Or, or like five shower like heads the at the same time. Five, like if you were taking yeah. a shower, if you're under an elephant's urine, it's like taking five showers at once. <laughs> but that sounds so appealing. <laughs> Just scrub away, and <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really, it's a lot of, it's very, very high flow rate. Yeah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, 
but that's that's what's necessary because it's got a really big bladder. And, and that was this that was what the Ig Nobel was for was for discovering that all mammals have the same pee time no matter what their <laughs> size, right? Yeah. Is that was that it? Yeah, yeah, that's the Ig Nobel was for showing the biological principle that animals urinate for the same time. Which is I, I wondered yeah. is there a particular evolutionary reason for 21 seconds that you can think of? Like why not 30 or I'm thinking of poor parents. I mean, you know, it's hardly the only time they get a break is in the bathroom. Like, why not 50 seconds for new parents? They could use the extra time, you know? Yeah. So what is the evolutionary advantage of 21 seconds? I think it's the natural selection working on this just good enough principle. So, so for, for all these animals that have the same time, they actually, it turns out, they need to have a pee pee pipe length to width ratio of the same thing. So all these elephants to mice, they all actually have the same pee pee pipe. It's just different size. And uh, if you want the pee time to be shorter, you've got to have a really long pee pipe. I mean, for an elephant, they have got a meter. And if you want to, you imagine there's no room for a two meter pee pee pipe. So, so it's just basically, there's a pressure to have this pee time to be small, but that didn't over, that didn't basically couldn't compensate for the pressure of basically, you can't walk around with this long pee pee pipe. So 21 seconds is just long enough to basically make sure you get it out and not get eaten by a predator, um, but there's no real driving pressure to push it to make it really short. I see, so it's predation. Like if you were gonna take yeah. a long time, you might get eaten. Y yeah, yeah, you might get, yeah, you might get eaten, I think, yeah. And then as it happens, you tell us in the book that there are actually a lot of really important health um, practical uh, um, uses for this knowledge that, that people are using it, doctors are using it to, to help humans with a lot of different health issues. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I just did the paper out of curiosity and because I also really wanted a paper with figure one being a big elephant urine stream. Uh -huh. But it turned out, you know, there are a lot of, you know. You have a lot of fun as a scientist, right? Well, we're, we're always trying to push, it, push I mean, our barriers. who thinks that that's what they want as their front piece for, you know? <laughs> it's a lot of fun being yeah, a scientist. I mean, I Just like say, take, it's a lot of fun being like a scientist. I like to take things that are really disgusting and then make them beautiful. Because if you look at that picture and you take away the elephant, it looks like a beautiful fountain. Oh, yeah, yeah, like it could be in Paris or something. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. I mean, there's. It turns out there are a lot of people citing this paper. There's, um, there's this Japanese doctor who saw our research. He's a professional urologist, and uh, he, he didn't believe it. So he actually interviewed two thousand Japanese people about their pee pee times. Uh, it was on this game show called Gaten. We were on a Chinese Japanese game show with him, and uh, he found out that. This 21-second rule is actually really, really good for predicting the effects of aging on your bladder. So you pee at 21 seconds if you're around 20, but at age 80, you pee for an average of 30 seconds. And that's due to the fact that as you get older, your bladder, it's a muscle, it gets weaker, and it just can't squeeze out the urine as fast. So basically, before that, they had to use lasers to measure the urine speed and to measure its flow properties. But now they can just ask, these urologists want to just ask someone, hey, how long did you pee today? And if it's 30 seconds, then you probably need to take some, some medication for your, for your basically low bladder so tension. So it helps reduce like the number of tests a person needs yeah. in order to determine what kind of help they yeah. need. Yeah. yeah, and there's these other people that are making these um, 
these artificial urethras. They're made of like uh, collagen and human cells, and they're making these as transplants um, for people. And they have to test these these for robustness to make sure they work day in and day out. And they didn't have a rule before. Now they test it for 21 seconds every three hours, and they'll do that for weeks on end to make sure that it you know it meets the David Who standard. <laughs> Is that what everybody calls it now? The David. No, Who's I just standard? called it that. But I'm hoping they'll just take it on. Yeah. Well, um, uh, you also had a rather interesting um, happenstance of, of this coming to congressional attention. So I thought I'd ask if you wanted to read a little bit of that section also. So um, uh, let's see here. This is, this is when this study kind of came before Congress. And we'll read the first couple paragraphs there. I was at a conference when I received an urgent message from one of my university's news reporters. In a grim voice, he told me to watch Fox and Friends, a daily morning show. When I turned on the show, a newscaster was speaking about the government spending millions of taxpayers' dollars on research. She said, you might expect these funds to be spent on problems like AIDS, a cure for cancer, or the Zika virus. If these areas of research had received more funding, then scientists might even have found a cure for them by now. No, instead funds were spent on other kinds of research. She then turned to a large game show wheel, labeled the Wheel of Waste, with the names of scientific studies on each of the panels. She was joined by a senator, and together, the two of them spun the wheel. As the wheel slowed, the flapper stopped on a familiar study, the wet dog shake. Then began an inquisition, a harsh criticism of why this work was a waste of taxpayer money. Keep going, okay, the next paragraph, yeah. They went on for a few more studies, how many shakes does it take for a wet dog to dry off? Which has more hairs, a squirrel or a honeybee? How long does it take to pee like a racehorse? By the end of the show, I'd become personally responsible for three of the 20 most wasteful studies for 2016. That's 15% of the nation's most wasteful research. My university later told me that as far as they knew, no one had ever been responsible for so many items in one year. While they were mortified, I was in some ways quite proud. I had never been responsible for 15% of an entire nation before. <laughs> and then you, kind of, you go on to say, you know, and, and I think this is something maybe people in the Bay Area might often have to do, which is defend some of these kinds of studies to their relatives who, who might not see a value of it. So, so tell us a little bit about how you perceive that, the difference between, I mean, how, how Congress might understand waste versus how you understand waste or value. Yeah. Well, when this first happened, I mean, I was, it was, I was very, I was just shocked. And uh, my university told me that I had to, you know, I had to come up with a response. I said, how about no response is response? They said, no, you got 15%, so you should probably write something. So uh, they gave me 48 hours to basically write a response to being accused for wasting, you know, millions of dollars. And um, I called it Confessions of a Wasteful Scientist. And, um, and you can find it in Scientific American, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's actually, I think, that's my most read piece of work. I think a lot of people have actually read it. Um, mostly because they want to see people being embarrassed and things like that and how they respond. But um, I mean, I saw it as a, I saw it as a kind of a, a, a problem with this, the science communication. And basically, they didn't, weren't understanding why we were studying these kind of things. And I looked in the literature, and it turns out, I mean, every month for years, they had this 
um, Golden Fleece Award, where they had been giving, you know, you know, very reputable scientists, naming them as being wasteful and basically sh shunning them in front of the entire community. And a lot of it, and still every day, there's um, politicians talking about why are we studying fruit flies? Why do we care about fruit flies? We should be studying cur curing human diseases. And I mean, they don't understand that you know, 90, 99% of the genes of the fruit flies are the same as us, and these are a good model organism. And, and similarly, a lot of animal studies do get targeted because people think animals are engaging, and these, these, um, people are, these politicians, they're trying to engage the public, and there's nothing more engaging than talking about, you know, interesting animal thing, things that animals are doing. Um, so they just, it just becomes a target for them. And, uh, um, so I saw it as an opportunity to basically to write this article to basically talk about all the all the things this this could lead to all the all the um, the reasons why I was asking these questions um, and uh, and also the unforeseen things that can happen when you do ask these when you ask these questions um, and a lot of people came to my side my NSF program officers said we we need the we need people to push the boundaries of science um, you What's know the idea that waste. You know, waste is when you think, uh, well, I have, I'm at A and I want to get to B and I have to take the most direct route. And if I don't take the most direct route, I'm being wasteful versus this other way of thinking. That's right. Yeah, this idea of waste is about you're not, you're using too much money to go from one point to another. But science is not about going from a known point to another known point as quickly as possible. It's about finding new points to go to. Um, so without this basically dis distance that you're going to, it seems like you're wasting a lot of money, but you're basically covering up with new destinations. That we didn't even imagine were possible. Yeah, so it's basically like totally, they don't really understand that the, the concept of research is coming up with new destinations rather than trying to go from A to B as, as, you know, as quickly as possible, as cheaply as possible. So how do scientists cultivate this capacity for asking questions? Like, how do, they, how do you cultivate the capacity for seeing a cockroach squish and then actually asking a question about it rather than just walking away? Are there things that you do to, to keep that kind of creative questioning alive? Yeah, I mean, one thing I learned after so many years as being a professional scientist is that it's kind of, science is not really like a body of knowledge. It's more like just a, like a philosophy, like a way of life. And, uh, I mean, one thing that I've learned is that there's a huge number of questions that we don't have at all any answers to, to like very, very familiar things. I mean, this cockroach is one thing, but I mean, your dogs and cats, like we're gonna publish a paper on the cat's tongue and what the spines on our cat's tongue are for. And uh, people hadn't looked at the cat's tongue um, in 50 years. And there's just, I mean, most of the things around us, we actually, we don't understand hardly any of the, any of the, any of the questions and any of the answers, we don't really understand very much of what's going on. So just seeing that, trying to ask, how does this thing work? And trying to, and just, try just kind of pursue that and just asking friends, why do you, how, do you this, how do you think this thing works? And, and uh, the only thing that we do different is that we actually have some tools that we can actually just try to do a couple simple things out. And I think that's the fun part. So it's really, what you're saying is it's really just a process of, when you notice something, rather than dismissing it, just going, huh, that's interesting, or that's weird, yeah. and seeing if a question comes to mind. Yeah, and in the end, you'll just get inundated with questions. I mean, every day there's tons and tons of questions that's come to mind, and also, the great thing about sharing this work with the public is that the public sends me tons and tons of questions. I mean, my email box is filled with questions about urination, 
and defecation. I mean, used to go to my junk mailbox, but now I open them, so this is basically my main mail. <laughs> um, like this is old, old fellow, he told me, he said to me, oh, Professor Hu, I have a study I thought you might be interested in. In my old age, my spine has become very stiff, and I am not able to wipe my own butts after I poo. Uh -huh. Why don't animals have to wipe their butts? <laughs> what did you tell him? Um, I thought, I told him that I think bipedalism led to basically, you know, lack of airflow. And instead of, you know, flaking away like it's supposed to, it ah. just sort of festers. So I told him, why don't you just walk on all fours and not wear pants? That should fix it. <laughs> what, what questions do you have now? What, what questions are you just randomly thinking of that might someday turn into research? Um, I'm, well, one thing we're, we're really, we're interested in, in, in smell and, um, how, how, how we smell things and, uh, um, looking at animals is a great way to do that because there's the big animals and small animals. And, um, one thing about when we smell things, um, we usually have a carrier. We have, the, we have to take in fluid. Um, but it's very, like when you have a sensor, what people usually do is take a constant inhale. But when you smell things, if I find my dirty gym socks, I'm not going to take a long inhale. I'm going to take these... <laughs> these preparatory sniffs. And that's actually an unsolved question. Biologists don't know why animals sniff. Why do we take this uh, f certain frequency? And, uh, Wait, I'm confused, because don't animals sniff in order to figure out what was there? Like, yeah. they can tell... But why don't they just take a long inhale? Why don't they just get as much oh, information as possible? Instead why do they gotta go back and forth oh. and waste time to, like, send air out? Um, uh -huh. And it's, it's across the animal kingdom, and... We went back to the elephants. I mean, the people at the zoo, they were telling me, hey, you know, there's other interesting things in the elephant besides its butt. And, and they're like, <laughs> and, and like what, what? They're like, oh, it's trunk. So we, we started doing these videos of the trunk, and these elephants are sniffing stuff just like, just like people are, I mean, with these frequencies. And it turns out they have really, really good sense of smell. Um, they, uh, people, uh, there's been some studies of using elephants to detect landmines because they can actually. They elephants have, can detect. Yeah, them. they have more neurons, smell neurons, than any other than any other animal. And, more um, than dogs. I mean, we're no, dogs are notorious for yeah, being able they, to I smell. I think they have, they have more, and it's un, it's unknown why. Um, uh, and uh, the weird thing is, they have this huge dead space. That's the trunk, like it's a meter long, and that should basically any smell that comes in should just get lost and stuck in the trunk. But actually, somehow it gets to there. Gets to there. Um, so, so last year we actually, my students, we built this machine that uses, basically pushes air back and forth to sniff things, and it has these sensors. And they participated in this cheese sniffing competition in Montreal, where they had to distinguish different types of local cheeses um, just by the smell. Wait, the robot did, or yeah, the, the, the okay. machine had the to machine do had it. The machine had to yeah. do it. I think a person would probably do it if they're trained. Um, but yeah, the machine had to do it like autonomously, and they end up getting third place with this special sniffing thing. So I really want to figure out like why sniffing, why sniffing is really useful. And so we should look for that in a couple of years. Well, five years. Yeah, you will see some elephants sniffing, not dirty gym socks, but like weird, weird things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here tonight. It's been just a delight talking with you, yeah. David. Too. Thank you. Thanks so much, Kat. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.